Well, this morning we're beginning a brand new series called Safe. It's killing you. Uh, and what we're going to discover over the next few weeks is that our addiction to safety is actually killing our faith. And we're going to look at uh, three specific individuals in the Old Testament, Joshua, Esther, and Daniel, and watch how God used their life so significantly, and yet it was in the midst of incredibly trying times. And if you look around at our society today, what you'll notice is there's been a cultural shift over the last 50 to 60 years in America. And this cultural shift is one of an American value that has become an undercurrent of safety and security. We live in a country consumed with safety and security. We even have an American proverb that says, you know, um, better safe than, help me out. Oh, you know that one. Good. Maybe you know this one. Safety never takes a day off. Anyone? No? No. Okay. That was just what my brother used to say to me growing up. <laughs> or another one is that safety is as simple as ABC. Always be careful. You know, it's fascinating. When I grew up as a kid, my parents would just send me out. And maybe that speaks a lot to the kind of kid I was. They just needed me out of the house. But, but they would just send me out. I'd be like seven, eight years old on my, you know, little BMX bike thinking I was the coolest. And I would ride and hang out with my friends all day long until I heard my dad's whistle. My dad has a profound, powerful whistle. And like from blocks away, I could hear, I can't whistle. I did not inherit that trait. Uh, and I'd hear that, and I, it, I knew it was dinner time, and I would come home. What's fascinating is the world our kids are being raised in, we have helicopter parents because we're afraid. We, we don't send them out because we're not sure what's going to happen. I was thinking about all the ways that our culture is driven by safety. Well, we have insurance to safeguard our future and our family's future, We put our money in a bank to keep our money safe. We have home security to keep our home safe. Uh, We even have the Nest doorbell ring to make sure our Amazon deliveries are safe. And because of an old wives' tale that is not even true, you have parents who meticulously examine Halloween candy for razor blades and all sorts of other things in it to keep their kids safe. Now, that's a farce, by the way. You can look it up, do the research. There has been no instances of any kid receiving Halloween candy from a stranger that has been tainted. However, it has happened from a family member to another spouse. That's a whole different story in another area. Uh, According to Business Insider, they did a poll of millennials about the, the 10 um, most critical concerns. What are the 10 uh, critical problems they are facing? And in the top 10 was this issue of safety and security. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Think about the world that millennials are growing up in or have grown up in. I just thought... to. The last 15 to 20 years has been a world of uncertainty. Millennials have grown up in a post-9-11 world. 
The war on terror and ISIS creates just a growing uncertainty about safety. We're reminded of this every time we fly. We live in a post-Columbine nation where now no longer school shootings are, you know, the, like, wow, it's become more of a norm. We live in a post-Great Recession economy, the 2008 decline, which is the greatest decline since the Great Depression. This is the first time since World War II that the next generation expects to be worse off than their parents. At no time have we ever had a more educated generation in America and yet have more of a bleak future financially. We live in a post-technological revolution, and with it came all sorts of exciting things like MySpace. Anybody remember? No? Okay. Uh, Facebook? Oh, that's dead now too. Okay. And yet what it created was this concern of living in this 24-7 bubble of where you are now what you post, and so you filter everything, afraid to even be vulnerable, trying to make sure that you get enough likes or streaks. And it's going further than that. Our definition of humanity is changing as the revolution continues with AI and augmented reality, gene editing. What does it even mean to be human anymore? How do you have human relationships? And we live, finally, in a post-Christian culture. The shift over the last 50, 60 years, no longer is there a moral foundation or shared values of what right is right and wrong. And in the Silicon Valley, it's not just post-Christian, it is anti-Christian. For those of you who are fans of the HBO show Silicon Valley... It's been said on there that you can be anything you want in the Silicon Valley, but a Christian. Now, this anti-Christian. Now, I could go on and on, but I think we get the picture, and I think your blood pressure is high enough at this point, and you're like, great, Ryan's back, now I'm stressed out. Thank you very much. And yet, what we've found is home of the brave has shifted to play it safe and protect what's mine. And this thinking has infiltrated the church. The church of Christ, which is meant to be a lighthouse set for those who are lost at sea. A city on a hill beaconing out forth for those who are desperate and in need of the love of Jesus. The church has stooped low into culture wars, into protecting what's mine, and circling the wagons, into playing it safe. And the church is irrelevant because we've bought into this misapplied value of safety. And it comes in part because we believe or have bought into some bad theology. I call it American dream theology. Because American dream theology is all about your happiness, your welfare, your pursuit. And by the way, God wants your holiness. Bad theology that has crept into the church is this. The safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. No, it's not. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not. Have you read the Bible? Jesus, John 16, 33, said, In this world you will have 
Thank you, seven people who read your Bible. I like that. (laughs) But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Did you know 10 of the apostles were martyred for their faith? The apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, he writes this. Next slide. I have worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger in the sea. It almost sounds like a country song, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> In danger from false believers, I have labored and toiled and fought, I have often gone without sleep, I have known, I've been hunger, I've thirst, and have often gone without food, I've been cold, I've been naked, that's how you say it in Texas. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Now that doesn't sound very safe, does it? Yet safe to say the Apostle Paul was in the center of God's will. See, what has happened, friends, listen, 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 is we've actually imported an American idea of safety about keeping ourselves from harm and protecting what we have. That is not God's concept in safety. In fact, this, is, this idea that the safest place is in the center of God's will is actually a misquote of one of the most courageous women during the Holocaust, a woman who hid 800 Jews and saved their lives to her own danger, Corey Tinboom, who wrote this. Next slide. There are no ifs in God's world. And no places that are safer than other places. The center of his will is our our only safety. Let us pray that we may always know it. What she's saying is the center of God's will, and if you want to put it into our modern context, isn't the safest place of protecting what's mine. It is the very best place you can be. The best place in all the world, is to be in the center of God's will. And yes, you can use that word safe if you understand it from an eternal perspective of entrusting your heart to the God who knows best and who is going to reckon all things. Not the safest place is in the center of God's will, and it's just so that I can be safe. See, here's what's happened. A world of uncertainty plus bad theology equals an anemic church. Anemic, weak, lifeless. Let me say it a different way. A world of uncertainty plus bad theology equals an anemic faith, an apathetic faith, a lifeless and weak faith. See, good theology is the best place in the world is in the center of God's will. It is not the safest. And here's why. You were created not to play it safe, but to live a life of significance. You know that deep hunger, that deep longing, that, that, that little thing that eggs, like, I, I have this longing for me, meaning. I have this longing for purpose. I have this longing that this one shot, and I only get one shot, that somehow it makes a difference. Like that was placed into you by your creator. 
And you were created not to play it safe, but to have a life of significance. Now, here's the catch. You can either play it safe or you can live a life of significance, but you cannot do both. You can either play it safe. You can retreat to the safety of your four walls, or you can live a life of significance, but you cannot do both. And the missing ingredient for us to lean in and to be the church God made us to be, the missing ingredients for you to live the life you ultimately long to live, to step into a life filled with significance, is simply this, courage. Courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, by the way. Courage is moving forward in the face of fear. It's been said that even a turtle to move forward must stick out their neck. And for us to move forward, to be the church God called us to be, to be a church filled of women and men who live a life filled with significance, whose, whose impact on this planet in this space and time that God's called us is that we lean into and live into the courage that God has for us. Listen, it takes courage to take God at its word. It takes courage to follow the Holy Spirit's leading. It takes courage to live a life of sacrificial love. How do you find courage when you need it most? I mean, how do you live courageously in the midst of uncertain times? When it looks like the world's falling apart, maybe for you, your world is falling apart. You got the bad medical report. You got the the job that's uncertain. Your family is fraying and fracturing. Uncertain times are nothing new to the people of God. In fact, it is in the soil of uncertainty that God does his greatest work through his people. Joshua was one such person living in incredibly uncertain, trying times. If you've got your Bibles, would you open them up to Joshua chapter 1? This is our teaching text for our time. Joshua 1, verse 1. Through nine. The author says this After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them. To the Israelites, I'll give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend to the desert of Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. It would be difficult, one commentator wrote, to overestimate the significance of Moses to the nation of Israel. For those who don't know the history, Moses led the nation of Israel out of bondage from Israel. Moses was their leader for over 40 years. 
Moses is the one who helps establish them as a new nation with new laws and new customs and new ways of behaving and all the civil and moral laws that came with that. Moses was the one who who bridged the gap and was really the spiritual link between them and God. And then Moses dies. And Moses leaves something unfinished of what he began. Moses was supposed to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land that God had for them. And he never quite did it. He dies before he ever is able to get there. And now Joshua has to take over. Just think about this. Think about the weight, the pressure of Joshua. He's been his young protege for a long time. In fact, Joshua, by the way, is about 75 years of age at this moment. And, and that's just a little word for some of you, because when I'm talking, when I just gave that kind of vision casting spiel, you know, like life is significant, some of you are like, not me. I'm kind of done. I'm kind of over the hill. Um, we don't have many of them in this church, but by the way, if you're not dead, God's not done with you yet. The call of God can come in on you at 17. The call of God can come on you at 75. And Joshua is facing immense pressure. Called to lead the people into the promised land to be the fulfillment of all that Moses started. No pressure there. And so how do you live or find courage? Notice what God does to, for Joshua in this text, in this moment. He, he, he says this, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now here's what I want you to do. Get your pen out. Get ready. Be strong. Circle that word strong. And courageous. Circle courageous. Why? Because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Now I just want you to notice one little thing. Joshua understood the price tag of playing it safe. Because 40 years earlier, he stood on the far side of the Jordan looking at it and thinking they were going to go into it. But fear took a hold of the people and they said, nah, we can't do it. And so they spent 40 years wandering in the desert until a new generation showed up. So he understood the price tag of playing it safe. He says, okay. And then God repeats himself. Verse 7, be strong, circle the word strong, and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Again, circle. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. In this text, we discover how we can find courage when we need it most. How you can actually take courage, not just hope for courage. Think about that. Like take hold of courage in the midst of uncertain times. The first thing we must recognize and must embrace is God's calling in your life will require courage. God's calling on your life will require courage. 
Did you ever stop and ask why did God say be strong and courageous? I had you circle that. He repeated himself three times. Because it's going to necessitate him being courageous and strong. There's going to be moments where he has to be strong and courageous. Think about this. God isn't calling you to something insignificant. He's calling you to something significant. Something significant requires courage. I love what John Stott, a theologian and pastor, wrote. He said, insistence on security is incompatible with the way of the cross. What daring adventures the incarnation and the atonement were. What a breach of conviction and decorum that Almighty God should renounce his privileges in order to take human flesh and bear human sin. Jesus had no security except in his Father. So to follow Jesus is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger, and rejection for his sake. And we first have to realize that when we step forward to follow the call of Jesus, his call on our life will require courage. Courage, the ability to face and deal with danger or fear without flinching. I love what C.S. Lewis said on courage. He said, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. It's not just one of the virtues like courage is out there. It is the form of every virtue at its pushing point, at its testing point. So think about this. Courage is love at its testing point. When your marriage is just on the rocks and struggling, and you know what culture says? says give up. Get out. Start flirting with the girl at your office or start flirting with the guy at your gym. And Kurt says, no, I am going to unflinchingly love you. Why? Not because you deserve it, because you have so loved me. Courage. Courage is integrity at its testing point. When you're at the office, and the way to succeed and the way to get ahead is to somehow push others down, to push, elevate yourself up, to cut corners, to, to over-promise and under-deliver, to, to get people to kind of get on your side. It says integrity at its testing point. Think about this, singles, just when we talk about our sexual integrity. The Apostle Paul would say, flee sexual immorality. That takes incredible courage in this day and age to say, I am going to live a life holy unto God in the way he defines life and sexuality to be lived, not the way our culture does. Think about this. The Apostle Paul would say this. Don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is for the edification and building up of others. It takes incredible courage in a social media-driven world when everyone's slamming and putting down everyone else and the vitriol and the negativity that comes across to say, no, 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 there's no unwholesome word that's going to come out of my mouth. See, you must recognize. We first have to recognize God's calling on your life requires courage. And here's the good news. God wants to encourage you. This is so obvious we miss it in the text. Did you know? Did you recognize chapter 1, verse 1 through 10 is God encouraging Joshua? The God of the universe placed a call on your life that's way bigger than you. That's going to fill you with fear and trepidation. 
that's going to require courage. And he doesn't say, hey, you figure it out on your own. You, you just kind of build up your own heart and your own life. You, you know, you just got to like, psych yourself up. You get the right tunes. If you get the right, you know, game time tunes, you're playing like, okay, I'm ready. Eye of the tiger. Let's go. Let's get out there. Come on. I'm going to just sit and think, and somehow I'm going to find courage within myself. And more likely what happens is it, it takes courage to do what I feel, Ryan. No, it doesn't. I'm sorry. It doesn't. It, that's so easy. And God says, I want to encourage you. Encourage means to infuse courage. It, it means to deposit and to put into courage into another person that the person once was there and they were lacking courage. Perhaps they were discouraged and someone came around and encouraged and now they're full of courage. That's what God wants to do to you. He wants to infuse you with confidence. Okay, so this is so cool. You track with me. I got a couple things that I, I, I think are amazing and I hope you do too. I mean, it's my first Sunday back preaching, so I don't know. It's been a while. So when Joshua, you know, the protege of Moses, uh, he, he had this habit about him. He followed Moses everywhere because we've got to wrestle with, well, how do we experience the encouragement of God? Now, notice this about what uh, Moses did. He, Moses would go to the tent of meetings next time. He said, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. Now, notice this. This is so cool. We miss it. It says, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. There's something about the presence of God that when you're around him, when you surround it, you don't want to leave it. It's one of the signs when I look at awakening uh, is like, man, when God showed up, it's not that we had this huge crowd. It's when the linger factor is people just don't want to leave the presence of God. In fact, one translation says, and Joshua lingered in the tent. See, I got to ask this question. See, God wants to encourage you, but the question is, which tent are you lingering in? See, I, I don't think we're lingering in the tent of God as much as we're lingering in the tent of comparison or lingering in the tent of other's approval or lingering in the tent of somehow, you know, wanting to succeed or wanting to get, you know, this performance. Which tent are you lingering in? Maybe you've never realized that the God of the universe wants to infuse you with courage. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to build it up. He just says, linger with me. That's why the psalmist says, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Did you catch, catch that turn of phrase? Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And here's when you're waiting on God, you're strong. Your heart, that is the seating place of courage. It says it'll take courage as you wait for the Lord. Again, wait for the Lord. Psalm 31, 24, be strong and let your heart take courage. Who? All you who wait for the Lord. Which tent are you lingering in? Now, let me show you something pretty neat and geeky, Bible geeky about this text. Because God actually, the author here, 
orchestrates this so that we understand the central point of taking courage is this linger factor. And so the structure of this text is something called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. It's used by narrative in the ancient Near East and in specifically the Hebrew text for building out this framework of thinking, of emphasizing in a narrative what points they're trying to say. Now watch this. It goes A, B, C, D, and then it works this way, C, B, A. And that's how a chiasm works. It goes, you know, and so it it bookends with, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. We're going to close with that because that's really important. Then it says, this calling, be strong and very courageous. Then it says, letter C, be careful to obey. That you may be successful. I just got to be honest, friends. We pick and choose. I pick and choose. The parts we like, the parts we don't like. It says, would you bring your life into alignment and under submission of the word of God? If you want to experience the God who will infuse courage in you, you first have to say, God, I'm going to take you at your word. And then it shows us the focal point of this text. And so the beautiful part about a chiasm, what's in the middle is the focal point or the emphasis. It says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Linger in the tent of God is what he's saying. Saying, what you did as a youth when you followed Moses, what will give you success as you step into this new land is one and the same thing. And we drift from what got us there, from the lingering with God, because we get busy. We feel pressure. We feel like we're really big and important. For us, Find courage when we need it most. First, we've got to recognize God's calling. On your life requires courage, yet he's not leaving you on your own. He wants to infuse courage in you. Would you linger in his tent? Would you get God's word in your heart and mind? Like, meditate on it. Like, meditate on it. See, we do two things, meditation and memorization. Meditation is for your transformation. Memorization is for your preparation. See, this book was not written for your information. It was written for your transformation. You get God's word in your heart, and it will change you from the inside out. That's why with my kids, we work on memorizing God's word. That's why as little kids, I don't want to raise up just any old kid. I want to raise up future world changers. And so we had to memorize this passage, Joshua 9, have I not commanded you? When they're young, we put it to music. God's word is powerful. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing joint and marrow, soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Like, This isn't just a book. This is a spirit-breathed book that God has put into our hands for us to become more like him. Useful for teaching and training and rebuking so that the person of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Like this book, would you get into it? Would you allow God to change you? If you're not lingering in this tent, i got to be honest, there's no way you're going to have the courage to do what he's called you to do. Point three, beware of two big enemies of the heart. If courage is fundamentally a heart issue, there's two big enemies. You saw it in the text, fear and discouragement, fear and discouragement. Fear, being scared, frightened, anxiety, panic attacks, trepidation. And fear breeds insecurity. Discouragement breeds apathy. And these two will zap you if you're not careful. And just full disclosure. When we planted Awakening Church, I was really afraid. And there's been many days through the course of this, I've been very discouraged. One of the things that I struggled with was this of don't be afraid. And feeling like, man, I'm failing and I just got to suffer this thing silently. And nobody wants to hear about their, their fearless leader who's afraid. Here's, here's what he's saying. Don't be surprised if you feel discouraged or afraid. Why are we surprised? Oh, man, I want to step out. The Spirit's leading me to share with my coworker or my neighbor and to invite them over to our house or invite them to Awakening's birthday or to, to somehow love that stranger. And then fear comes up. Why are we shocked? Don't be surprised if you're afraid or discouraged. Here's what he's saying. Just don't let your afraid nest, that's not a word, fear or discouragement Drive your decisions. When you're clear that it's God's calling, here's what he's saying. Do it scared. Too many of us are waiting for us to feel not afraid before we do anything, and we're missing out on what God has for us. And he says, do it scared. Lean into it. I'm not really sure about it. And here's the thing. My wife and I were a thousand percent clear that God called us to plant a church, and so we did it scared. Not knowing if anybody's going to show up and just take the next step. Take the next step. Okay, God, whatever you have us, we're just taking that next step. I'm doing it, and I'm not really sure, and I'm afraid, but I'm going to linger in your tent, and as I stay there, I hear your voice, and your voice gets louder than any other voice, and your voice gets louder than the fears inside me, and so then I begin to hear and respond to your voice only. Finally. God's calling on your life requires courage. God wants to encourage you. We've got to be aware of these two big enemies. But don't miss this. God's with you. You notice on the chiasm there, it's the bookends of this. Do not be afraid is used as the most often command in Scripture over 70 times in the NIV. It's often coupled with this promise, for I am with you. Now, I want you to see something. When Moses passed the baton of leadership to Joshua, we see be strong and courageous. Then we see obey, be careful to obey all God's law. Then we see God is with you, this this little pattern. And then when David passes the baton of leadership to his son Moses, we see the same pattern. Be strong, be careful to obey, and then God is with you. And then when Jesus passes the baton of leadership to his disciples, he says this. Next slide. 
Thanks. Then Jesus came to them, and he shifts the be strong and courageous. He does say that, John uh, chapter 16, I believe. But he says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Like, your strength is coming from my authority. Now, that was good. I'm not going to lie. That was good. Because it's not somehow you manufacture strength. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Your strength and your courage is derived from my authority. Amen by myself. Now we'll go on. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what does he say? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. By the way, church, we've gotten away from that. I'm going to just let that sit because, I, yeah, because I got, to get, I got to get off this stage. It's really, and then he closes, <laughs> and surely I am, help me out, with you. with you. In the midst of a courageous calling, in the midst of fear and discouragement, God seemed to think his presence was enough for you. And i got to be honest, this, this idea stayed at a distance for me, like the witness of God, until I had a moment a number of years ago that like, helped me understand what was happening. When my daughter was a little girl, we were at the beach, and when we were at the beach, I loved to surf and play volleyball, and this one time I had a, a um, paddleboard with us. And she was, uh, you know, seeing me paddleboard, and she says, Daddy, I want to go paddleboarding with you. No, she's a little girl, and I said, great, I'd love to take you paddleboarding. She's so excited. We get a life vest on, and, and we soon just jet out into the wild blue yonder. And what started out as excitement turned to sheer terror. As she began to look and see the waves and how big they were, and that we were so far from land, it was only about 20 or 30 yards, but it felt so far in the depth of the water. And she literally was on the center of the board, and she was grabbing her knees, and she was just shaking. She was just shaking and crying, Daddy, take me back. I'm so scared. And I said, suck it up, kid. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) I whispered in her ear, it's okay. It's okay, your daddy's with you. You're okay. The waves aren't as big as they look. We're not as far from shore as it feels. The water's not as deep as you think. And even if it was... It's okay because I'm with you, and I wouldn't take you out here if I wasn't confident you're safe with me. I just wish in that moment that my daughter could see what I saw from my perspective. 
And when she looked at her circumstances, it filled her with dread and fear. And when I looked at him and said, you're with your father, if you're on your own, it could be fearful and dreadful. And you could get swept out to sea and a wave could take you down. But you're with your dad and that's enough. And because you're with your dad, you can be in the middle of the ocean and you can just be enjoying the view because your daddy's going to take care of you. For some, you just need to hear. Your heavenly father is saying, not suck it up. Because that's what you heard from him. That's what you think he's saying to you. And what he's saying is, it's okay. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. It's okay. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm going to close with this. Invite Taylor to come up. What would you do if you were absolutely confident God was with you? What would you do if you were absolutely confident your daddy, your heavenly father is whispering into your ear, it's okay, I'm with you. Enjoy the view. What I want you to do, you have a three-by-five card. I don't want to run, rush past this moment. You have a three-by-five card. I want you to take it. And I want you to write that question in Joshua 1.9. I got the verse on the next slide. And I want you to keep this 3 by 5 card with you everywhere you go. Just look at it daily. Remind yourself. Okay, what would I do today if I was absolutely confident God was with you? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you. Like I said, when my kids are little, to help us get God's word into our heart, we'd put it to song. We memorize this song. Taylor's going to sing the song that we put together as a family just to allow you to sit in this moment and respond.